0: This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. Anyone who's ever moved to New York City knows that it is tougher than it is in most places to rent your first apartment. Getting approval can be a real nail-biter, and you might find yourself paying thousands of dollars to a broker for the privilege of living in a teensy studio with the bathtub in the kitchen. And the troubles don't end there.
1: New York welcomes and shelters the tired, the poor, the persecuted. ...who have been forced to leave their homes at the whim of a ruling class. Therefore, it's ironic that all Manhattanites face the same horrible uncertainty... ...knowing that any day, they may have to utter the tragic words. My building's going co-op. Did you get the tomatoes? My building's going co-op. I have to move. This is a nightmare. Why don't you just buy the place? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, sure. That's a great idea. Why not? Aiden, I just charged tomatoes. I really don't think that I'm in a position to buy an apartment.
0: Now, most of us, actually all of us, aren't Carrie Bradshaw from Sex in the City, and we don't have the dreamy Aiden to save us from the perils of losing our apartments. And for many New Yorkers, housing is more than just a pain in the checkbook. It's a serious problem, and that's true for some groups more than it is for others. Today on Fordham Conversations, we are talking about how one group of New Yorkers, immigrants, do in the city's housing market. My guest today is Emily Rosenbaum. Rosenbaum is a professor of sociology at Fordham, and she is the co-author of the book The Housing Divide, How Generations of Immigrants Fair in the City's Housing Market. That book's out now from NYU Press. In that book, she and Samantha Friedman look at where and how immigrants, their children and their grandchildren, live. Rosenbaum joined me in the studio earlier this week to talk about what they found. Emily Rosenbaum, welcome. Thank you. Now, I'll just start from the very beginning. What were the major questions that you were hoping to answer in this book, and what did you find? Uh,
2: Well, I guess that there were a number of major questions. The first is, to what degree do race and ethnicity determine where people live and what opportunities they have for social mobility? And the second was, given the rapid increase in immigration to the city and nationwide, but particularly to the city, to what degree does race influence the housing opportunities of immigrants specifically? And we find, as does a lot of the existing literature, that race and ethnicity do matter in that um, blacks and Latinos have access to lower quality housing and neighborhoods than do uh, non-Hispanic whites and Asians. And with respect to immigrants, we find that consistent with the historical pattern of increasing housing opportunities and increasing housing quality and neighborhood quality, as you move from the immigrant generation to the third plus generation or the grandchildren and their descendants of original immigrants, whites, Latinos, and Asians all experience this pattern. But blacks are the only group for whom housing conditions and neighborhood conditions deteriorate over generation, and in fact, over time, within
0: generation. And that's because they stop being Caribbean or African and become Black.
2: Right. Drawing on a number of ethnographic works of West Indian Blacks in New York in particular, we have concluded that because over time and over generation, Caribbean-born Blacks and other foreign-born Blacks lose their distinctive ethnic traits, such as accent, and um, other things which they can use to telegraph that they're not native-born American blacks, but instead foreign-born blacks, they become black in the eyes of uh, white neighbors and institutions and are thus treated in the same way as native-born blacks, so less well than they are treated as foreign-born blacks.
0: Now, in this book, you've actually hit upon the two things that I think are some of the most fascinating things about New York life, which are housing issues and immigration issues. But why do you use housing to look at immigration?
2: Well, housing is a good way of looking at the prospects for assimilation or becoming a full member, full and participating member of American society. And this is because housing conditions, like the extent to which the housing is in good repair, um, without leaks, without cracks, without dust, that kind of thing, influences health and health has a later influence on education and occupational outcomes. If you're sick all the time with asthma, you miss school, and missing school leads to lower levels of attainment in the future. If you're sick all the time and you miss work, you could lose your job, you could not get promotions in time, so on and so forth. Neighborhood conditions also have a prominent effect on people's abilities to do well in society. Um, If you live in a neighborhood where all the kids in high school drop out, the odds are that your kids are going to drop out because their peers are all dropping out. If you live in a neighborhood that's filled with crime and other dangerous conditions, this can affect your hormone level through the, the reaction of the body to stress, which can then increase your, your risk for chronic diseases. So not only are you a nervous wreck all the time because you could get murdered or, or robbed or whatever when you go outside, but it wears your body down. OK, so you could die earlier. You could, again, have uh, less favorable educational outcomes or occupational outcomes. So housing and neighborhood really do play an important, although sometimes overlooked, role in people's abilities to do well in the future,
0: to do well socially and to do well economically. And they also show something about um where a group of people lives also shows something about who they are within society, right?
2: Right, precisely. Not only is housing an input to people's abilities to do well later on, but it's a reflection of, of who they are at that moment in time. And so it's, a, it's an important indicator of socioeconomic status, but also an
0: important predictor of later achievements. Tell me how New York compares with other major cities in terms of immigration. Oh, well, New York uh, historically
2: was the main or one of the main gateways for immigrants to this country. Currently, New York remains an important gateway. It's one of five or six metropolitan areas that um, receive a disproportionate share of immigrants to the U.S. And this is counted as legal immigrants, so immigrants that we can count through visas and that kind of thing. The peak proportion foreign-born was um, 41 out of 100, or percent was 41 percent in, I believe 1910, um, which dipped as a result of restrictive legislation and also different economic times to a low of something like 18% in 1970. But since the reopening, if you will, of immigration, um, the percent foreign born in our city and their children has grown dramatically in all racial and ethnic groups, particularly Latinos and Asians, but across the racial ethnic groups.
0: Now, you mentioned immigrants and their children, and this might seem like an obvious question, but when you talk about immigrants in this book, who are you talking about specifically?
2: Uh, People who are born in another country. We also include, actually, individuals born on the island of Puerto Rico not because they're not U.S. citizens, because they are, but because the process of migration to the mainland can resemble the process of immigration from a foreign country to the U.S. So uh, the definition of immigrants that we use are individuals' householders who were born abroad um, and whose parents, both parents, were also born abroad. So who are immigrants in New York? Uh, Dominicans, uh, people from the former Soviet Union, uh, increasingly, West Africans are comprising a larger and larger proportion. A number of central and south American groups Mexicans are um, an increasing a rapidly increasing group uh, although the Mexicans in New York are different, if you will, from the Mexicans who go to Los Angeles. The Mexicans who come here tend to be from Pueblo as opposed to other states in uh, Mexico who go to the west coast and the and the southwest. I'm sure I'm... Oh, Chinese. I'm missing Chinese and Koreans. And we have in New York, or New York receives, um, a vast, vast array of people from different, different countries, um, as opposed to other areas that, that um, whose immigrant streams are predominantly from a single country, like Mexicans in Los Angeles.
0: How did that change the kind of work that you did, the fact that the immigrants coming into New York are so diverse?
2: Well, it actually makes it easier and more interesting, if you will, because um, we have immigrants in, as I said, in every racial and ethnic group. And so you can control, if you will, you can statistically eliminate the competing effects of race and ethnicity, or race and and, um, country of origin, really, if you will, because we have foreign-born whites and foreign-born blacks, and because we have foreign-born Latinos, as well as U.S.-born members of all these racial and ethnic groups
0: including Asians. You are listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. We are talking today on the show with Emily Rosenbaum about immigration and housing in New York City. Rosenbaum is a professor of sociology at Fordham, and she is the author, with Samantha Friedman, of the book The Housing Divide, How Generations of Immigrants Fare in New York's Housing Market. The book's out now from NYU Press. Let's return now to that conversation tell me sort of the, if you would, like a a tale of two families, one of whom is a family from the the former Soviet Union, and one is a, I don't know what, say a black Dominican family. How are their housing prospects likely to change and diverge over time? Well,
2: at the beginning, they might differ
0: a little bit to the extent that
2: there's structural resources in the community. Individuals from the former Soviet Union are treated as refugees, and so they're provided with um, aid by the U.S. government upon arrival in terms of um, income assistance. And there are also large organizations that have been present historically in the city since the 19th century to aid Jewish immigrants. And so there are structural resources available for individuals from the former Soviet Union, not just in terms of income, but also in finding housing and finding jobs, that kind of thing. There are structural resources, community-based resources for Dominican immigrants, um, but they're let's say they're not as old as those or as established as those available to to those from the Soviet Union, former Soviet Union. So um, a new Dominican immigrant might rely more so on his or her social networks or family networks. There may be initial similarities in terms of crowding um, within the household, but the Family from the former Soviet Union or individual from the former Soviet Union would probably find that they have broader choices throughout the city and would probably be steered on some level to a white neighborhood. I know that anecdotally, at least, um, the organizations that have been in place to help Jewish refugees and Jewish immigrants helped to bring a number of these refugees to aging white neighborhoods in the city to help prop up, if you will, the white population, but also as a way to help the, the refugees become incorporated into New York City and, and American society because there were similarities in tradition, similarities in community, that kind of thing. Whereas a black Dominican family wouldn't have those opportunities necessarily because of the importance of race in determining the outcomes of interactions with real estate agents and so on and so forth.
0: So if you were to walk into a hypothetical real estate agent that was exactly at the center of the city, if you were Dominican, you'd be likely to be funneled towards, say, Inwood or one of those neighborhoods that has a large Dominican population, whereas if you were from the former Soviet Union, you'd be likely to be funneled towards, say, Brighton Beach or a neighborhood like that?
2: Oh, probably. Probably. But um, it, it also depends on socioeconomic status, of course. Um, in that there are Dominican communities not only in Washington Heights, and the South Bronx, but also in Corona and that central western part of Queens, Corona, Jackson Heights, so on and so forth, which vary by socioeconomic status. As is the case for people from the former Soviet Union, there's Brighton Beach, there's Manhattan Beach, which has more McMansions, if you will, as well as Forest Hills, so on and so forth. So so there would be some variation. But over time, I think that the... um, individuals from the former Soviet Union would blend in with the whites and the black Dominican individual would blend in with African Americans and in the eyes of the institutions that determine where people or that contribute to the determination of where people live.
0: Well, this is a little bit of a in a nutshell kind of question. But tell me the history of sort of immigrant housing in New York City, because it hasn't always been like it is now. No, no, no. It used to be worse in many respects and and also
2: better in some respects. The initial large flows of immigrants who came from Western and and Northern Europe and dominated by the Irish and the Germans moved to very densely populated neighborhoods with with deteriorated housing because they were all in lower Manhattan. These were the initial houses. Um, But as they did better and as the city was moving northward and housing policy also implemented better standards for construction the Irish and German immigrants who had been here for a while, who had achieved social mobility and or their children could move to neighborhoods further from the core, from the older neighborhoods and could move to housing and neighborhoods that better reflected who they were, what they had achieved since coming in this country. So as they were moving out in the late 19th century, the Russian Jews and Italians and other immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe were moving in. So they occupied Again, the worst housing in lower Manhattan, but moved out. Largely, the Italians replaced the Irish and followed the Irish since they had similar skill levels to other neighborhoods that were nearby work sites like digging tunnels for subways, building bridges, that kind of thing. Whereas the Russian Jews followed the Germans um, because they there were more there was a higher level of skills in this population. So follow the Germans From lower Manhattan. Actually, the German um, neighborhood of Deutschland, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, became the Jewish Lower East Side. Then followed the Germans to Yorkville and out to Brooklyn and so on and so forth and into the Bronx. And again, these flows or these processes are occurring at the same time as is the growth of new neighborhoods, as well as further corrections, let's say, to housing codes through the Tenement House Acts of the late 19th century into the early 20th century. So the housing that the later generations of those later immigrant groups got to was much better than the housing that the original immigrant groups got to initially. Then, uh, but currently, it's different in that because of the loss of middle class whites, over time from a lot of neighborhoods, especially in Queens and Brooklyn, a lot of new immigrants since 1970, let's say, are moving to neighborhoods that aren't these run-down tenement neighborhoods to a large degree, but are neighborhoods with single-family homes or garden apartments of a different level, neighborhoods of a different level and housing of a different level than is the classic
0: story in immigrant assimilation. And ironically, those apartments are now really expensive. (laughs) (laughs) So- at this point in time, if I were to if I were to emigrate here uh, from another country today, how would I be welcomed, and how would I not be welcomed into the city's housing market?
2: Well, I think inevitably you'd end up living initially with people that you either knew from your home country or people who were part of your broader social network. And then once you were able to get on your feet and maybe were able to bring some family over, so this would take a certain amount of time, you would have to get in and try to navigate the housing market, which is a daunting thing, even for people who were born and raised here like myself. It's not fun. So how you would be received would be largely determined by, unfortunately, your race and your ethnicity and interacted with that how you are presented with your accent or with your other obvious indicators of your ethnic identity. So as I said, for blacks, the ethnic identity that can be displayed outward and and easily benefit them. For other groups, it may not be as beneficial, as was the case in the history of immigrant assimilation. Okay, the ethnic indicators indicated you're not an American, and so, um, you know, we'll treat you less well than we would an American. But for African Americans, it's a flip side. Or I should say for black individuals, it's it's the reverse. Ethnic markers tend to bring better treatment than the absence of ethnic markers.
0: You are listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. I had this morning on WFUV at 730. It's Cityscape with George Bodarki. On this week's show, a look at teenagers and drug use. That's ahead on Cityscape. We're talking this morning on Fordham Conversations with Emily Rosenbaum. She's the co-author of the book The Housing Divide, How Generations of Immigrants Fare in New York's Housing Market, out now from NYU Press. She's also a professor of sociology at Fordham. I asked her what the best and the worst case scenarios are for a new immigrant who's trying to find housing in New York City. Well, I guess the worst case
2: scenario would be not finding a place to live and being homeless. Um, Does that happen? Sure. I don't know what the different risk factors are for immigrants versus native-born individuals for homelessness. But just if you logic it out, since new immigrants tend, and of course it's different, there's a great deal of variation here. But since they tend to be poorer and less educated and have less to use to pay for housing, the risk of homelessness is probably higher. Also, if they're crowding, crowding, crowding into just a couple of rooms with lots of other people, disagreements and discord could cause some people to be kicked out, whatever. So I think that immigrants, just like the poor in New York City, face a a fairly substantial risk of homelessness. The best case scenario is finding a decent place that's not plagued with cockroaches and mice and and leaks from the outside, so a decent
0: place that's not going
2: to get you sick. But the exact outcomes, hard to say.
0: Could you sort of run through for me what's sort of typically happening through, say, three generations of immigrants, both white and non white?
2: Um, well, for non Hispanic whites, Latinos, and Asians, in terms of indicators like home ownership. Maintenance deficiencies, so the cracks and the leaks and the dust and the rodents and that kind of thing, as well as the quality of neighborhoods in terms of the poverty rate, the crime rate, the percent of students who are doing well in math, so the quality of peer networks for kids, all these things are getting better over generations. But for a black immigrant, as I indicated before, it's the reverse. So um, the farm born among black New Yorkers are more likely to own their own homes, are more likely to live in higher quality units than are the third plus generation. Farm born black New Yorkers are more likely to live in safer neighborhoods and neighborhoods where where kids are doing well in school, neighborhoods that have fewer poor residents in them, and neighborhoods that also have more one- and two-family homes that are more suburban in appearance than is the third-plus generation.
0: So what, what plays into that sort of stepping down?
2: Well, for black individuals, black New Yorkers, as we argue, black race remains, unfortunately, this, this persistent barrier to opportunity. So when we're looking at all groups, farm-born and, and native-born blacks both do badly compared to whites, and both do badly compared to Asians in terms of housing quality and neighborhood quality. But farm-born blacks do better than native-born blacks. And I should also say that that um, comparing the farm-born with the third-plus generation among blacks is kind of comparing apples and oranges in a way. In that, the farm-born blacks are from the Caribbean and other countries, West Africa, um, so on and so forth, whereas the majority probably of the U.S.-born blacks, and we can't tell this because we don't have the variables to disaggregate the native-born blacks, but they're probably largely descendants of southern-born slaves who migrated here in the late 19th century. So in our statistical test, we compare the farm-born generation with the second generation, those who were born here but who have at least one parent who were born abroad, and we still find the same differences. So, so our analyses are not affected by ethnic differences between the different generations of, of black New Yorkers. But back to the original question, the strength of race as an obstacle to one's advancement, to one's ability to achieve social mobility, economic ability, residence in a in a decent neighborhood or in a higher quality neighborhood, I should say, is softened when the individual is viewed not as a U.S.-born black, but as a foreign-born black. And this relates back to stereotypes about different groups and the institutions that and individuals who are gatekeepers to housing, insofar as they hold these stereotypes, negative stereotypes of Black people, generally speaking, but better impressions of the foreign-born than the native-born, the farm born will receive better opportunities. So they'll still do less well, statistically, than whites and Asians and certain Latinos, but they'll be doing
0: better than their native-born counterparts. So when you were doing this research, was there anything that surprised you about what you found? Unfortunately, no.
2: <laughs> no, um, both my co-author and I have a long history in doing this kind of research. And in fact, this this book is sort of a summary of all the work that we had done individually and, and collectively over Ten plus years, in addition to the newer analyses of um, generational differences within specific groups. So, no, neither of us were surprised. And again, it's a, it's an unfortunate thing, but we were both very much aware of the importance of black race in determining where you live and what opportunities you have available to you.
0: What would you like to see happen to improve the situation? Well, it's
2: that's really complicated. Um, the easiest answer is the stricter enforcement of fair housing laws and the extension of fair housing laws. Generally speaking, if you believe that you've been discriminated against in the housing market, it's up to you to make a complaint as opposed to some other body. So if you even, but many people don't even perceive that they've been treating, treated badly because that by necessity requires a comparison group. But there are a number of um, community based fair housing groups that regularly go out and test the housing market to see if, in fact, there are there is discriminatory treatment or differential treatment. But these groups also need to be alerted to certain real estate offices or companies or individuals in order to go out and test them. So mandating broader testing programs, funding these efforts to a higher level, and really taking it seriously rather than just giving fair housing lip service at the federal level, would be a start. In, in addition, we speak to issues in immigrant policy. The rhetoric about immigrants is, as we're aware, fairly negative. And immigrants are often portrayed as coming here to take all of our resources, to use our social welfare system, whatever. But our analyses demonstrate that immigrants today— are on average similar to immigrants in history. And so those same people who are arguing against immigration today are the grandchildren, great-grandchildren of immigrants in the 19th century. And if people would just, as I said, our analyses demonstrate that given the opportunity, most immigrants take the opportunity and do well or their descendants do better, so on and so forth. But that opportunity is denied to African-Americans. I shouldn't say African-Americans, to to black immigrants over time. So the importance of better enforcement and creation, let's say, of stricter fair housing legislation would not only help native-born minorities who are affected by discriminatory treatment in the housing market, but would also help to provide black immigrants with the same opportunities to do well as um, white immigrants, Latino, certain Latino immigrants, and Asian immigrants
0: have. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Emily Rosenbaum is a professor of sociology at Fordham, and she's the co-author of the book The Housing Divide, out now from NYU Press. We'll close out the show today with another take on immigration, this one from Elizabeth Pliego for Cure Youth Radio in Chicago. It's a letter to her aunt Ophelia, who migrated from Chicago to Mexico and had to leave her children behind.
1: The drive was five hours through the hot desert. No water or food. You were swallowed up into a white Honda van, along with 12 other immigrants. As tiny as are, tia, the driver, or as we call them, el coyote, decided to flatten you under the front seat So that another two people could squat on top of you. The job was twelve hours a day and six dollars an hour. You barely had time to eat. Your back throbs from packaging food at a hundred and fifth and Cicero from mid morning to midnight. You do this to earn a couple dollars to mail back to your family. When you come home, your eyes are the color of blood. Tia, que tiene? What's wrong, I ask you? You then reply, Nothing, I just miss my kids. And you bow your head and flare tears. You've left my cousins, Ivan, with his baby gap teeth, and Milton, who had plumpy cheeks of a six-year-old. Los extraño tanto. I miss my kids. I can't stand the pain of missing them anymore. I can't imagine the pain of a mother who has left her kids to work in a different country. I know you wish to fly my cousins in, but it's impossible to pass them into the U.S. the same way you came across. This is why, Tia Ophelia. if I could give you anything in the world, I would give you a citizen certification grant for my cousins. They could fly into Chicago on La Mexicana Airline with reclinable seats in first class, sipping on their orange juice, and munching on some peanuts. At the landing, as you wait for their hugs, They'd rush to the warmth of a mother and you'd wipe the tears off their baby cheeks. You then know that you will never again separate from my cousins. Never again will you be separated by hours or days or dollars.
0: From WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org, this has been Fordham Conversations. If you missed part of the show today, or if you would like to hear it again at a future date, there are a couple ways to go. It's available as a podcast at WFUV.org, and it's on our audio archive. You can find that on our website as well. If you have comments or questions about today's show, you can email us. Our address is Fordham Conversations at WFUV.org, and we would, of course, love to hear from you. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thanks for listening and have a fabulous weekend.